don't need to wear my mask, so I'm really pleased about that. I think I'll use this mic. Um, anyway, the subject matter that Sarah gave me this evening was submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And I've joined this with the Matthew uh, passage, chapter 20 to 20 to 28. Hopefully, the projectionist will be able to put a, my picture up there at some point. Great, thank you very much. I'll come to that. You can, you can enjoy looking at that, and I'll come to it in a minute. Um, well, I looked up the word submit in the, in the dictionary, and basically I got two meanings for it. One was to yield oneself to the will of another, and the other one was to, to submit a document or form for approval. Obviously, the second one doesn't apply here, and therefore it's the one, yield yourself to the will of another. Then it prompted a question uh, in my mind as to which what submit actually means to people, because I feel that submit can have pretty strong reactions in people. They can react. It's quite a provocative word, and during lifetime experiences, people have the experience of having to submit to things that they don't want to submit to. So I was going to ask, what comes to mind, your mind when I say the word submit? Is it an attractive word? or is it unattractive? Do you do it willingly, or do you do it unwillingly? And that really much depends on what we're being asked to do. Now, I believe the world has a view, a view which is diametrically opposed to the Christian view. And my take on it is when I looked at this, I had a picture in my mind of two wrestlers, and in it you see one of them has got them in a hold, which is really uh, a submission hold, which when they do that, the other person can't get out, and they've deemed to have won the contest because they've won on a submission. And so that was in my mind. But it also made me recall my early days when, when I was about 10. My father used to enjoy watching the wrestling, as it was then, on ATV. In those days, we just had two channels, ATV and BBC. And this used to be on about four o'clock in the afternoon, so I had to endure watching the wrestling. And I could never understand why he liked it, because he had these ladies in the front row handbanging each other. And I wonder whether that's where the handbagging comes from in, in sports games, where that comes from. Anyway, I had to submit to watching this and to know that about five o'clock, I could turn the channel over and watch um, Doctor Who. This is all in glorious black and white in those days. And I can never, and when I watched it, it it was a really scary experience watching Doctor Who and watching the Daleks in black and white. I can never understand why watching things in black and white, some psychologists might be able to tell me, was much more scarier than in colour. And I still have memories of that, perhaps not going behind the sofa, but something akin to it. Anyway, the purpose of this is, I think, it's quite a good metaphor for the world as to how they see submission. Because in the picture, you see it's a strong person overcoming a weak person. And that conjures up in your mind domination, abuse, and power, which is not what the Christian meaning of submission is at all. Then I thought, that begged the question, what is, what is in fact the Christian view of submission? Well, I thought the best place to start would be with the son himself, and to look at his submission to his father before he came into the world. So you can imagine the conversation it wouldn't have gone like this, I don't think. Well, all right, then, if I must. That would be highly unlikely. And I feel that Jesus would have been entirely happy to 
do his Father's will, a ready acceptance to come and save the world, to leave his heavenly throne of glory. And that's an amazing thing to do. But then that prompted another question, and I said to myself, well, what qualities did Jesus have in order to put his, do this ready acceptance of his Father's will? Well, three came to mind. One was that he must have realized he was deeply loved. Two, from flowing from that, he must have had a complete trust in his Father, in his plans. And three, to accede to his Father's plans, he must have had total humility. But he would have had all these in full measure, deeply loved, complete trust, and total humility. And then I thought, well, in some degree, when we submit to one another as Christians, we must have show in some measure those three. But I think it's also important to point out this point. It's the, the verse Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that can be translated as submit to one another out of profound respect for the truth. Because John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this means we should only submit to one another when it's undergirded by truth. We shouldn't submit to one another willy-nilly. We must always submit to one another when it's undergirded by truth. That prompted another question in me, as if we have these three qualities of love, trust, and humility, what does it equip it for? It equips Jesus, and it also equips us. We become servants. For Jesus, because he had those in fullness, in full, he became the servant king because he was the greatest servant of all, now and when he was on the earth. So looking at the Matthew passage, verse 28, Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And again, that prompted another question in my mind. How does the world view servanthood? Like submission, it has a totally different view of what servanthood does to the Christian view. In the world view, to be a servant is being lowly, demeaning, and it's certainly not great. And the lower the servant, the more servant-like you are, the less of the person you are. And yet Jesus is the exact opposite. Because he serves so much, serves more than anybody else, he's the greatest. So that's completely topsy-survey. It's almost as if the world has worldly specs on, and sometimes we can fall into that trap of having those worldly specs on ourselves in view of submission and service. In, in the Matthew passage, um, Jesus himself corrects the disciples. He's not, he doesn't, he's not slow in correcting them when they're wrong. He's, and he, this comes out of a conversation when um, the mother of the two sons of Zebedee comes up to Jesus and says to him, you know, can you promote my sons? Can they sit at your, one at your right and one at your left? But Jesus, knowing their minds, knew what the problem was. They are a misunderstanding of what greatness meant. So in verses 25 to 28, he actually puts them right on the matter. So I'll just read those again. Um, he says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So in, in this Bible passage, she deals with greatness and servanthood and turns it upside down into the minds and corrects the disciples to see that the more servant you like, you become more great, the greater you become. So to recap, I believe when we submit to one another and become servants to another other, we must have love, compassion, humility, trust, and be doing our service out of truth. So in practical terms, what does this mean for us? And also to certain and to extent to non-believers as well. How do we serve our, friend, our Christian friends and our, our non-believing friends as well, and even our enemies to that matter? We're all parts of the body and we're all called and we all have different gifts and each one, whether you're an eye or an ear in biblical terms, you're serving the other person. This might involve just practical help, mending chairs. It might be visiting the sick, caring for elderly, coming alongside someone and giving them emotional support. And there's a specific mention in the Bible about deferring to another Christian who has a weak conscience on subjects of food. Don't eat the food in the presence of them if it's going to cause them offence because you're weak in their faith. So the list is endless. You could go on and on. However, in the context of submission and service, I want to just take one example, which is not actually within church life, but might, you might find perhaps at work or school or college or university. What do you do when you see a workmate colleague being bullied by another? Do you turn away or do you act? If we're submitting to the truth, it will mean we have to act in some capacity. It might be a safeguarding issue, which is obviously current and very important in the church today. We might need to report the incidents. We might have an opportunity to confront the bully, if that's appropriate, or certainly we might need to comfort our colleague. But in all three, we need to put our head over the parapet, as it were, and submit to the truth, which may be costly for us as well. But the irony here is that where the worldly view is that if someone is dominating somebody else, they're actually making them submit. They're being the powerful one and they're making the person who's weak submit to them. The irony is that they're actually submitting to evil. Everybody is submitting either to evil or to good. And they think they're not. They're making that weak person submit to them. But they're actually submitting themselves to, to evil. So Jesus turns that all the way around by submitting and serving others in a servant-like capacity in the truth, we're becoming great. And therefore I thought there was, we could have summarized this in this way. World submission is a strong person overcoming a weak person. Christian submission is a person strong in the Holy Spirit overcoming his or her weakness to the good. Where, and again, servanthood in the worldly perspective is demeaning, lowly, at the bottom of the pile, and not very great. Whereas Christian servanthood is the more you serve, the greater you become. So each case, those twos are opposite. So by serving one another, looking out for each other's needs, we grow in love for God and each other. We also grow in trust and humility as well. Then I thought, well, our growth, growth in faith is not a static thing. It can go up and down depending on what we do and how, whether we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds into Christ's likeness. We are growing upwards into the light of Christ's kingdom. 
And then an analogy came to mind, which I hope you know, about submission and service for God. It's not quite Jacob's stairway in his dream reaching to heaven with angels descending and, ascending and descending on it. What came to mind was instead a stairway just down there reaching up to heaven and at the top is Jesus, our servant king. And when we are Christians, he picks us out of the world and puts us on the bottom step. And as we grow in love and trust for each other, as we serve each other, we do works, uh, help each other, then step by step, and these might be small, steady works, week by week, which we think, well, they don't account to much, but in God's eyes, they do. And then bit by bit, steadily, we're going up these steps. And as we go up these steps, we grow more and more into the light of Christ. And as we grow, then Christ is able to equip us because we then have more love, trust, and humility, he's able to equip us with more works of service. And we each have one of these stairways, as it were, into heaven with Christ at the top as a servant king. But it might be that some people in the past have been called to be martyrs, and they're much higher up than we are, because they've made a greater sacrifice for human mankind. You see how the likeness of Christ is growing here. So... Because in, 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 the, in, the other, um, in Ephesians 5, at the beginning here, it, it says, well, not, we can also trip up. And it's, in 3, it says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish chalk, or coarse joking. Therefore, we can do things which aren't pleasing to God. And that, in a way, trips us up and perhaps sends us down a step or two. But God, in his graciousness, because we have forgiveness in him, because he's died and we can ask for forgiveness for our sins, he can pick us up again and put us on a step and we can go on our upward journey. And the motivation here is that our prospect in heaven is that when we're like him, when we die or on judgment day, then we will know the fullness of love that he is experiencing now how high, how deep, and how wide that love is, and also a full trust in God and full humility. And therefore, that's a tremendous motivation for us to carry on and, our, and persevere in our Christian journey, upward journey, in, from the darkness into more light. But it's also motivation for us in our relationship with non-believers to see the imperative that they hear the gospel and Jesus takes them out of this world and puts them on that first step so they too can go on their upward journey. Then I thought, are there any challenges here for the wider church? We've seen that it's so easy for us to have a worldly interpretation on submission and servanthood. And it's a, in a way the church can very easily have the worldly specs on instead of the lenses of the Holy Spirit on different subject matters. So the church has to be brave before it can actually attempt to right the wrongs of the world. It must look at the Bible and say, what is the Holy Spirit saying here? What are the lenses of the Holy Spirit saying here? And then you can challenge the, the world and say, like on submissions uh, and service, this is what the Bible says, and it's different to what your viewpoint is. This might be costly, it certainly means we won't collaborate with the world, and it means 
in a sense, we have to confront the world with the truth of the Bible. And this could be costly, but it needs all members to, to partake and the church, because I believe it's the only way the kingdom of light can capture people out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the light. Because we're called not to water down the Bible, not to accommodate the views of the world, to make them more palatable, which is a tremendous um, temptation, and especially now with the culture, the secular culture, to water things down. But Christ is calling us to hold, like Jesus did with his disciples here, to hold on to the truth so the truth can be seen, so he can honor the truth and his spirit can work in the world. So I think I'll stop there and um, thank you for listening. <laughs>